I want to ask, if you will, to open up in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 37. Genesis 37. We, uh, just to kind of keep you up on where we are, uh, Lord willing, the, the last Sunday of May, we will conclude our journey through Genesis. And that's with two pit stops on the way. Really good pit stops. Mother's Day on May the 8th and uh, on May 22nd, we're going to have a, a special Sunday where we really uh, want to encourage our, our senior adults and, and just the impact that you have on this church body. And, and next week, we, we're recognizing our, our seniors, those graduating from high school and college. And, and, uh, but we'll, but we'll, be, we'll still be in Genesis uh, that week. But, but listen, we, we have four more messages from the book of Genesis. And one of those is what we've learned from Genesis and where we're going from here. So we don't have much time. And we have 13 chapters of one of the most beloved stories in all of Scripture. This is the story of of Jacob and his sons. Twelve sons. The 11th of 12 boys, his name is Joseph, which we know him well. In fact, I would imagine that most of you in the room could give me a brief description of the life of Joseph. It's one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture, highlighting one of the most glorious doctrines that exists, one of the most beautiful theological points that we could ever discuss, and and that is this, is the divine providence of God. The glorious providence of God. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to walk you through a, a study, a case study, looking at the life of Joseph and these brothers and this dad and walking you through the, the life of this 11th son born to Jacob. And watch this as a study, as a story that will help us understand a doctrine for us to stand on the rest of our life until we are face-to-face with Jesus, the, the providence of God. And so if you will, take out your outline, and I, I want to give you a brief description of what providence is. And so you'll see in your outline there, it says Providence 101. So go ahead and let's start there before we jump in to this story. And, and even before we look at the points here on the outline, I want to give you a definition uh, by a man named Steve Farrar. Uh, Keith left me a book to read and I, I read it after I had turned in the outline, but I really like this definition. And so I want to give it to you. This is Steve Farrar and his definition of what providence is. And he, he says, the definition of the providence of God is that which God creates he continually sustains and he provides for. And nothing great or small is outside of his absolute control. Nothing is outside the realm of his sovereign rule. Now with that definition, I want us now to go into the uh, Colby version of this, which is, which is Providence 101. And, and it goes something like this. And so look with me at the, the first uh, bullet point. 
It says that God created, and we must understand this, God created everything and everyone. God created everything and everyone. Now you may be in this room today and you say, well, I don't believe that. Okay, well, we're not trusting what you believe right now. We're trusting in God's word. And so God's word says that God created everything in every one. Going from that though, this is where providence really begins to come in and the doctrine of it is that God continually and intimately uh, or, or is continually and intimately involved with everything and with everyone. And so that which God creates, he cares for. He cares for. He didn't create everything and then go hide behind Mars. That's not what he did. He creates everything and he's intimately involved with his creation. That includes us. Look at the next point. That God sovereignly cares for. He upholds and he guides his creation to fulfill his ultimate purposes. Now, now look, I understand that when I say these things, this is like being up 30,000 feet and we're looking over and we've got these really big, strong points that we're talking about. And sometimes we can learn really big, strong points and they seem like they should be meaningful to us, but for whatever reason, we walk out of the room and they're not. Come back to that thought in a second. Look with me at the fourth bullet point. And the providence of God is that God's providential grace, and you might want to write in there this word, surprising grace, will always lead to God receiving glory and his people receiving his goodness. Now listen, you may think that theology is not important. But I want to be very clear with you, if that is the case for you, and if that was the case for me, we are fools. We're fools. Everybody in this room has theology. You just either have true and right theology or you have it wrong. And wrong theology, when the storms hit, when life hits, you won't stand. We want to be a church body that proclaims and we dig in rich theological truth. Truth that when we believe it, we will stand no matter what comes. No matter what we go through, we'll stand tall. We'll stand in victory. We'll stand in freedom. We'll stand with the life, the very life of our own God. You've heard people say they're going through something horrible and they say, look, everything happens for a reason. That can be the atheist, that can be uh, the Christian, that can be anybody. They they say that, like you, you go through something, they say, well, everything happens for a reason. And some of us need to stand up and say, why do you say that? Who told you that? Based on what? Is that just what you say when you feel bad? When times are tough, when it's dark? Is that just what you say? Like, why? Why do you believe that? We don't want to do that because it's difficult times and we feel like that'd be offensive. But listen, to anybody who says that, why do you say that? Based on what? 
Church, we have something better than flippant crutches to rest on. We have God's infinite word to rest on. We have truth to rest on, a solid rock in which we can stand. And this week and next week, we will look at this glorious truth of the providence of God. And if we see it, if we're able to hear it, it goes into our soul. Listen, we'll stand and we'll stand tall, not just now, but the rest of our lives. We will be able to look back with faith and we'll be able to look forward to a life of hope and trust and confidence in God. The story that we're going to look at here, the, starting in chapter 37, is probably the most clear example of a story that we have that, that shows us the providence of God in all of the Old Testament. And if I had a second one to choose, it would be what we're looking at on Wednesday nights, which is the book of Ruth. The story of Joseph, at the end of Joseph's life, he's going to be able to look back over all that has happened and he speaks to us a word of God's providence. He gets it. He looks back on his life with faith and he looks forward to his life anticipating hope and trust and confidence in God. And so we want to be able to see this same truth. And listen, oftentimes we learn best through story, don't we? We learn best through examples. We learn best through experience. And so this is God's gift to us as we get to experience the life of another, uh, Joseph. And as we look at this story, watch your heart be able to grasp hold better of theological truth. And so join with me as we look at number one today, the providence of God and the story of Joseph. So chapter 37, we've got... Uh, Joseph, and, and he has been, in a sense, a, a victim. Okay, now he will end up being a victor, but right now he is a victim. And what he's a victim of is this, and some of you have probably uh, experienced this, in fact, in some way, all of us, but family dysfunction. His family is highly messed up. Now, they are a patriarchal family, but they're messed up. And what has happened is Jacob, this guy that we've been learning about for a a really long time, Jacob was uh, his mother's favorite. His brother Esau was his father's favorite and it messed up Jacob's heart and his mind. Jacob grows up, ends up with two wives and two other women that he has children with. It's not the best example or way to go. It's not really wise to do life that way, but that's what happened in his life. And within that massive dysfunctional household, there was favoritism there as well. Jacob favored his wife, Rachel. Rachel was barren uh, until a little bit older in her age, and she ends up having the 11th of 12 sons, and she has Joseph pretty late in Jacob's life. And so, Joseph naturally becomes his what? His favorite. 
Chapter 37, we pick up and we've got uh, Joseph and, and, and we're going to kind of see a snapshot of what life was like for him. And so join me in verse three, we're told now Israel, and that of course is Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And it could have said because he's Rachel's firstborn. It says, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they did what? They hated him. They hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. And so they can't stand Joseph. And, and to make it worse, there's a scene that happens right before where we picked up and, and Joseph comes in one day and he tattles on him. He tells on him. Now, he may have been right and what he said, but you know what it's like when the little guy tells on you, okay? And so you got these other brothers that they've been doing who knows what. We know they're not really good guys. Remember, two of them slaughtered an entire city of men. One of them slept with his father's, uh, you know, one of the other mamas. And uh, so literally, Reuben has been uh, with several of his brother's mother, okay? These aren't really good guys, all right, so they're not the people that we say, let's be like them, okay? That, that's not what we have, but they're out doing whatever and, and Joseph sees them doing whatever and he comes in and he says, dad, you won't believe what they're doing. Well, they hated him worse, okay? To, get, uh, to make matters way worse for Joseph, God gives him a couple of dreams. And, you know, we have a really good picture of Joseph as we read chapters 37 through 50. In fact, he seems in a sense, like we don't, there's arguably nothing that we see that is sinful about Joseph's life when we read uh, this text. Now he was a sinner, uh, but we're not given that as we read. But in chapter 37, there's an interpretation that we could take that he was a bit naive. He was a 17 year old. Okay. And if you've been there before, you know, you were a little naive and you did things that you probably shouldn't have done. And his way of talking about his dreams might not have been the best thing. And so you can see him around the, the big messed up dinner, uh, breakfast table. And he says, guys, last night I had this dream. There was a, a bundle of wheat, sheaves of wheat, and they all fell on the ground. But then there was this one that was just standing up tall. That was me. You know, it was cool. Like y'all were all like bowing down to me. It was neat. Uh, next morning, you can see him coming in. And he goes, guys, guess what? I had another dream. This dream, it had the sun and the moon and the stars. And it represented like dad and mom. Like mom is actually not there at this point anymore, but it represented mom and, and my brothers. And, and they were all bowing down to me too. Shoot, I guess I'm going to rule over y'all. You know, neat. You know, they, they hated him. And they wanted to kill him. That's how bad they hated him. They hated his dreams. And in fact, we, we learn about it that, uh, that, that Jacob even, it says this, uh, verse 10 of chapter 37, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But look at what it says after that. It says, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Jacob's going, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, of all people, Jacob knows what it's like to be the younger and get raised up to, to be the leader, doesn't he? I mean, he knows what this is like. He knows that God doesn't always do things the way that, that men around him might interpret that he should do it. And so he's got this tucked away in his mind. Well, 
time is going to pass a little bit and, and uh, Joseph's brothers, they're going to head off and, and they're going towards Shechem, which I'm like, how are they going to go towards Shechem? They killed all the men there. You would think they wouldn't want to get too close to that place, but, but they do and they go and they're, they're doing their thing over, over near uh, Shechem, probably trying to make a buck or two. And, and Jacob says, Joseph, Joseph 17 at the time, I'm ready to send you off. I need you to go on a massive journey. It's about 80 miles or so. I need you to go and I need you to go find your brothers, make sure everything's cool with them and then come back and give me a report. And, and so, so Joseph, he, he goes off and makes this journey, which I'm sure is pretty neat. When you're 17, you're like, man, I've never got to leave the house before. And now he's like going to Shechem. And so he heads off and, and he ends up asking this uh, guy, this guy sees him and Joseph must've looked like a 17 year old. You know what 17 year olds look like when they're walking around lost okay well this guy saw one and he said he, he sees joseph and he says what are you doing and he said i'm looking for my brothers and he said oh oh i know where they are they they're in dothan by the way anybody from dothan in here we got any dothan? different dothan but just out of curiosity okay uh and so, so he, he says, go to Dothan. Well, he goes looking for his brothers and I'm assuming he doesn't see them, but they see him. And when they see him coming from afar, they go, okay, let's kill that dreamer. Let's take him out. No one will know. I'm telling you, this is a messed up family, you guys. Let's take that boy out. Let's see what becomes of those dreams now. That's what they say. Reuben, the voice of reason. We've already talked about him. He's, he's a wise man. Uh, in this case, he actually is fairly wise. He says, hey, I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm the firstborn, and I'm saying I lived a little longer than you guys. This, this isn't good. We shouldn't kill him. Let's think about this for a little bit. Well, they do think about it for a little bit, and Judah says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we not kill him, but why don't we make a few dollars? Why don't we sell that boy? And so they take Joseph and they throw him. They strip him of his robe and they throw him in a pit. They didn't lower him down. No, they chunked him in the pit. He's hurt. And they decide to sell him to some Ishmaelites. And you'll see there's a, another word that's used for the Midianites and, and that same, same people. Sells Joseph to them. I want to read to you what this scene must have been like. This is one, you, you, you won't know this, and you probably never called it before. In chapter 42, I don't want you to flip there, just listen. In chapter 42, Joseph is going to be in a position where his brothers are going to not know that he is who we know that he is, and that's Joseph, but he's going to overhear them talking about when they sold him. And I want you to listen to what they say. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Listen to this. In that we saw the distress of his soul. Do you hear that? We, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This was a scene that was awful. Like we're so used to dumbing down stories. I, I don't know why this is, but we're like, yeah, he got sold into slavery and then he was awesome. And no, no, listen, 
He was distressed in his soul. You know, he was crying out, begging them, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Let me live. Let me come back. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And they just watched him as he was taken off. They lived with that. They go back and they tell this massive lie to their dad. They bring in, they slaughter a goat. They put blood all over the, the, the robe and they take it to him. And he says, surely my son's dead. He was in great distress, discomfort. And it says that those boys, those sons comforted him. What? I mean, are you serious? It's another scene. They're like, we're going, they throw him in a pit and they go and eat. Like, who are these guys? Joseph is sold into slavery. Well, that wasn't the last word for Joseph, we, we know this in uh, chapter 37 there at the end, uh, we're, we're told this right here. It, it says in verse 36, it says, Meanwhile, while the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph gets sold and he ends up in Egypt. He's at this high ranking government official's house and he's a slave there, but he has a job and I'm sure he's broken hearted and messed up in his head and concerned, but he has a job. Well, God blesses everything that Joseph does. Everything he touches, it like turns to gold. And God was with Joseph. We're told that numerous times. And God just uh, prospers this entire house and even nation because Joseph is there and God is good. And, and everybody notices, even Potiphar notices, your God's awesome. And so he raises him up to this great position. Uh, it says that, that Potiphar had no concern about anything except for what he ate. But then we're told that Joseph was handsome. And we know that something's about to go down, and of course it does. Uh, Potiphar's wife also thinks Joseph is handsome, and so she constantly throws herself on him and says stuff like this, lie with me. Okay, that's not very ladylike, okay? And that's what she does. And so she keeps telling him to uh, go with her. And he says, no, I can't. How can I sin against God? How can I sin against my boss? Like, I can't do this. And he just proves to be just a wonderful man of God and faith. And yet in one day, uh, she catches him alone. And he says, there's no way this can happen. And she grabs his uh, garment and she pulls it off. And he runs out and she frames him. He tried to, uh, you know, he, he tried to do this to me. He tried to physically overcome me. And, and so, of course, Potiphar gets upset, throws him into uh, prison. And so now he's in double captivity. He's a slave and he's in prison. And while he's in prison, everything he does, uh, we see that God is with him and everything he does is awesome. And so like the people that are in charge of the jail say, hey, Joseph, I think you should be in charge of the jail now because you're better than we are. And so he places him in position to run the jail. While he's running the jail, two guys, a cupbearer and a baker, they get thrown into prison too. I have no idea what the cupbearer did. I have no idea how bad that guy burnt that bread, but he gets, he gets sent uh, to prison. And while they are under the care of Joseph while he's in prison, they come up one day and they say, oh man, we had these crazy dreams, man. We don't know what to do. And, and he tells them the dreams and Joseph goes, I can tell you what's going on with these dreams. And the cupbearer says, okay, okay, tell me, tell me, tell me. And he goes, okay, in three days, you're gonna get restored to your position again. 
everything's going to be awesome for you. And he's like, yes, great. The baker's like, oh, tell me, tell me what's going to happen to me. I want to know. Tell me my good news. And he goes, your dream, actually, you're going to get hanged and birds are going to eat your flesh. Okay, that's literally what happens. And so it's like not quite the same news. And that actually happens. Both things take place. One is killed and one is restored. As the cupbearer is about to be restored, Joseph says, remember me. Tell the Pharaoh about me. Tell him I'm here. Tell him who I am. Tell him about me. And, And guess what? He forgets. He forgets. Why would anything good happen with Joseph at this point? And so he forgets to say anything about him until one day when the Pharaoh has dreams and they're confusing to him. They're about fat cows and skinny cows and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, I don't know anything about these cows or what's going on. And I need help. I'm distressed. I know that something is trying to be communicated to me and I can't interpret it. And the cupbearer, two years after he got out of jail, says, there's this Hebrew. This guy that was in prison, I don't know if he's still there, but if he's there, guy is awesome at interpreting dreams. He can tell you what's going on. He's he's got skill in that. And so they go, they tell Joseph, take a shower, get shaved up and come on up and talk to the Pharaoh. He comes, he interprets the dream. He says, hey, there's gonna be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of absolute famine. I think what you should do, Pharaoh, is put somebody in charge of like saving up food during these seven years of prosperity and and then you'll be prepared to handle whatever comes for the seven years of famine. And he goes, that's exactly what we should do. You're the man. And Joseph goes straight from prison into the highest ranking position imaginable except for the Pharaoh himself. In fact, a lot of people call him a co-king. He is literally the second most powerful man in the world at that time. Went from prison to that in about, you know, 10 minutes. Joseph ends up one day, as he is providing for the people, he lays eyes on several men that walk in. He recognizes them. They are his brothers. Several things happen. We'll talk more about it next week. Several things happen with his brothers, but long story short, they end up being before him and Joseph tells them these words. This is after the word of God tells us he remembered the dream that he dreamed in chapter 37. Look with me, chapter 45, one through eight. In fact, we'll just go, chat, we'll go verse four uh, of chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For listen, for God sent me before you to preserve life. How could they sell him into slavery and God send him? Providence of God, sovereign rule of God, big God. Little God can't do that. Big God can, true God can, and he did. 
He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land. Chapter 50, uh, Jacob has died and the brothers are scared. They think that he was only nice to him and saying those, you know, Christian things because his dad was alive. His dad dies. I want you to listen to his words. Verse 19, he says, do not fear for am I in the place of God to be upset with you? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph looks back on his life with faith in God. And he looks forward with trust, hope, and confidence in God because he believes that God was with him and cares for him and has great purpose for his life. He looks back. He's not angry at them. He doesn't uh, try to have them killed. He doesn't try to have what was done to him done on them. No, he doesn't. He looks back and he says, God did this. God did this because he wanted to save your life. I want you to see not only the providence of God in the story of Joseph, but also the providence of God in the the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is what Sally Lloyd-Jones, how she ends the account of Joseph. I want you to hear what she says. This is after telling the story of Joseph, and she calls him a prince. Okay, And she says, one day God would send another prince. A young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God, he would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. In Acts chapter 2, the providence of God is seen and felt uh, in the cross of Christ. And I want you to hear as Peter is preaching what he says uh, to the men of Israel. He says in verse 22 of chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As yourselves know, as you yourselves know, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God delivered him to the cross. This was the foreknowledge of God. That's what he says. He he says, you crucified and killed him. So like we see this uh, ultimately in the crosses is that evil men did evil things and they crucified Jesus. It was their own evil and their sin that caused them to hate him and kill him. But yet it was the divine forbearance of God, that the foreknowledge of God that, that he crushed his own son. We see the providence of God most clearly in the gospel of 
Jesus. This act of providential grace proves that God can bring good to all who love him. And that God is, as we read earlier, he's for us, he's not against us. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ through Jesus our Lord. Next week, we'll look more at this. This is a high view today. I want you to see lastly, the providence of God and the reality of our own lives. And So on Wednesday, we will uh, celebrate and look back on five years since that day. Now, I very much remember walking and thinking, this is hopeless. What good can come from this? I know you did. I remember being in a circle praying, and I I remember... I don't usually remember things like this, but I remember praying. I, I, I prayed, a, prayed a scripture from the Sermon on the Mount about the, the Father. The Father who only gives good gifts. I remember getting in my car, I walked across the street, got in my car, and I thought, what did I just say? <laughs> How is this a good gift? Church, let me tell you. Who, who could have known? Now, this is just one little story. There's stories all in this room. Larry Corder could tell a much better story than I'm about to. But listen to this one story. How was it that I met my buddy, David Keziah? I met David Keziah and he wanted to introduce me to his soon-to-be father-in-law, Keith Pugh. He's an awesome pastor, he said. He's going to be coming to, uh, you know, they, they get married. I, I met I met Keith at, I guess it was at their wedding or during that time. And and uh, not too much longer, though they were in Tuscaloosa and Keith, and they called me and said, hey, you know, we're going to do a study at our house, a Bible study. You should come over to our house on Thursday nights. And so Catherine and I uh, had no idea how to be married. And so we went to their, their house and on Thursday nights, who would have thought that that conversation, that time would lead to a day when our building is destroyed and I get a phone call and he says, hey, why don't y'all come here Sunday? Uh, Following the circle that we were in, following the prayer that I said, God doesn't give bad gifts to when I thought, yeah, he does. What is this? To five years later, we look back and we say, what a gift of grace. Look at what he's done. It's just one story. Look at what he's done. Next week, we'll look at the providence of God and we'll continue to dig and apply. But listen, look at what he's done. He has given us through the story of Joseph, ultimately through the gospel of Jesus, the way for us to, with rock hard, solid truth, look back on our life, everything that happens with faith and look forward with hope and trust and confidence in our God, who is a glorious giver, who's given us his son will he not also graciously give us all things? I'm gonna ask if our worship team would come up. And as you do, I'm gonna pray. And here's what we're doing. We've been, you know, we 30,000 feet in the air, but 
trust in this God today. He's trustworthy. I, I, I heard a sermon. I, I was, I was driving, driving back from uh, a wedding in Mississippi last night, really late, and I was listening to this sermon by Matt Chandler, and, and it was uh, recent. And he, he's reading through Romans 8. You know, you got the sword, and you got, uh, you got the famine, and nakedness, and all this, and he says, uh, who can come against us? And he said, have you met my dad? Do you know who my dad is? And, and I, I love corny, so that got me, and I mean, the whole way home, I was just pumped, because I do know him. And he's trustworthy and he's kind and he's good. He's good. Let's believe in that God today. The God who sent his son so that we could live.